This is Kate, and welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. But it's all about the coronavirus. <laughs> I mean, for for a while, everything is through that lens. So yes, this is um, quarantine is number three. Is this the third podcast we've done? Yeah. Yep, yep, this separately. Quarantine, yeah. yeah. Yes. So what's astonishing you? (laughs) Well, um, okay, well, I'll go first. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm going to go first because the perfect lead in. Here's what's astonishing me. Um, Everything is harder. And that is just, um, I'm just realizing that everything that I know how to do is harder right now. And I mean, down to, it's harder to have a conversation over Zoom than in real life because you start talking at the same time and there's glitches and delays and, you know, leading worship or or like walking through Holy Week with your congregation, like this is harder in this time and being with your family is harder and just everything. Grocery shopping is harder. Staying healthy is harder. Regulating your feelings is harder. Um, And so I... I am just kind of astonished. I mean, it was this revelation that I had because I've been frustrated with myself for not really, um, because I just feel like this is such a rich season um, to pastor people and to grow. And like, and and among the hard, there are so many opportunities for um, breakthroughs and revelation and and just um, growth and change and transformation um, but that's just because everything's harder. <laughs> and, um, so I, I don't feel like I have it all, um, figured out how to take advantage of everything that is potentially beautiful and holy and good in these days. Um, and it just kind of hit me that like, yeah, cause everything's harder. <laughs> and, um, so I suppose that I, think that's worth naming because um as a as a leader in my community I think it's important to dig deep and articulate what is you know the Philippians whatever is good and true and lovely and edifying and to speak on those things and I want to do that but I also think that it's important to just name other things that are real um just everything is harder and um, if you're not feeling as like, if you also are not feeling like you're getting as much out of these days as you should be getting, um, you know, it's just cause everything's harder. And I can remember when I was starting out in ministry and I was doing, um, a youth ministry at my church in Boston. And it was just a really beautiful, um, community, um, in the heart of the city. But like we started doing youth group on Friday nights and, I don't think, I mean, I love Jesus and I love the kids, but I didn't know what I was doing. And there are lots of things that I would go back and do differently now. um, I did too much myself. I didn't build a team, whatever. But I just, I would get home and um, I just could not get out of my car. Like that was just how sort of mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted I was. I just couldn't get out of my car. And, um, and I do remember in those days just thinking, okay, um, just because this is hard doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, right? And I feel like that's, that's kind of back where I am in this season to say everything is harder. And so I feel that, like all of my sort of illusions of competency have been shaken or stripped away. Everything is harder and that does not feel good. But just because everything is harder doesn't mean that I'm doing it wrong. Like we believe that life is not a puzzle to be solved or a, you know, a level and a game to be defeated. And so it's hard right now. Um, and that is astonishing to me. And also just to be able to accept that, yes, everything is harder. And I mean, whether that's okay or not, it just is. It is. So that's what I'm been 
Yeah. Well, I can totally connect with that. I remember when I was ordained in February of 1998 and went to uh, pastor my first church in Oxford, North Carolina. Uh, I remember that first week, I think I cried every night, if not every night close to it. Like I would get home and just burst into tears thinking I've been training for this for years. I My undergraduate degree is in religion and Christian education. And then I did three years of seminary. And then when I start the thing that I thought I was training for, that I was training for, it was so disorienting and so difficult. And so um, it was scary. I thought, okay, I'm never going to adjust. I'm never, this is, I, I can't do this. And so I remember crying most nights and this is way before I got married. And so, you know, I lived alone and it just felt lonely and isolating and yeah. Yeah. And this kind of feels like that. It just feels so disorienting. And I had an unrealistic expectation. I gave myself a week. I was like, okay, after week one, fine, I'll get on a new schedule. It will be okay. Then week one, Pat, I'll say, okay, maybe another week. Uh, and so even now I'm wrestling with things are still really hard and I haven't adjusted, you know, in a way that I assumed that I would be able to adjust. Um, well, what is astonishing you? Um, well, it it kind of connects with what you were saying. I, I'm asking my myself the question, how will this crisis uh, change our society, change um, change the church? And I, I'm trying to look forward because I do think there's going to be, something's going to be different. Many things are going to be just different from this point on. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if we'll be kinder to one another because we've been in this um uh, social distancing. When we see one another, we'll just be so happy to see one another. But how long would that last? I'm, I'm wondering um, how the church's ministry um, uh, uh, rituals might change. I'm mindful that, you know, in the history of Israel, I think it was. I hope I'm right about this. I think it was after the Israelites returned from Babylon that they established synagogues because the temple was destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if this is a moment like that, that something is going to emerge in the church that will just, it'll look and feel and be different, but it will be right for this time we're entering. And so I'm, I'm astonished by that reality because, you know, as someone who likes history, I'm often astonished by how uh, the the church in particular, but institutions in general, adjust to these huge historical circumstances. And I feel like we're in one of those. And a hundred years from now, people are going to look back at this time and say, oh, these people did this because of that crisis. And that's why we have this thing now. Yeah. And I do think like um, for us in the PCUSA in particular, and maybe mainline churches in general, and maybe all North American churches. I do think um, it is, and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot, um, the church can become um, just a a thing unto itself. Yes. And um, like just the institution of church and the programming of church and sort of the rituals and programs that we do can become so inwardly focused and can become sort of start off God adjacent and creep over into God replacement. Mm. And so um, I think this moment where so many of the things that we thought were just essential bedrock cornerstone have to be reconfigured and reinvented. And then we say, I mean, on the one hand, obviously Christianity is an embodied faith, right? Um, and so we're not, um, you know, we're not whoever that, whoever was it, Marcian said, like the physical world is, 
evil and created by a lesser God. And right, one, I mean, of, one of those we're, heretics. We're not that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of those heretics. <laughs> um, but, and so we, we know that the created world is good and that bodies matter and, and community matters and gathers to get, gathering together in community matters so much. But also, I mean, we are, we are a, a people that are um, led by the spirit and filled with the spirit. And this, you know, transformative moment of being born again by the power of the spirit, which is like the wind and we can't predict it and we can't harness it. And I think for a lot of us, um, you know, American, you know, post-enlightenment Americans wanting to control everything, we have sort of written the spirit out of the equation because it, the spirit can be to our, from our view, so mercurial and, I mean, not under our control and we don't like being vulnerable to that. And so we have said, okay, God, instead, we're going to build these booths for you. <laughs> like We're going to do this thing that will remind people of who you were once instead of the much harder, more vulnerable work of opening ourselves up to be, um, to, to, to be, um, participating in what you're doing right now. And so I do think, you know, we are uniquely, um, you know, we're, we're not a people who believe that you have to go to a particular place and make a certain kind of physical sacrifice. And you, I mean, we've never, you know, for, for um, reformed and always reforming believers, we're not a people who believe that only a certain person with a, you know, with authority given to them in this kind of line of succession, that's the only person who can interpret scripture or who can teach scripture or who can hear your confession. Like we, we don't believe that. And so in a way we, we are shaken out of our routines and it's disorienting and there are good things that we're missing in this season, but also everything that's essential to us most of us still absolutely have access to. We have access to the Holy Spirit. We have access to one another, not in our bodies, but you know, we have communion. I mean, and I just think it's helpful um, for us to be aware of the fact that if we feel like we can't be the church in this season, then I think that says a lot about us and about mm. how we have taken the Great Commission and sort of contextualize it in a way that we can control and that we like. And the reality is, I mean, this, this is a season where um, there's been so much disruption and disorientation that lots of folks are really um, seeking meaning and asking deep questions and looking for hope. And, and we have hope and what is, what is bedrock in our lives has not been disturbed and is not limited and has not been shaken. And we ought this is a really beautiful season to be the church. Um, and so I, I'm with you. Like, I do think when, when the people were in exile, what God was able to reveal to them through that disruption was the way that the temple itself had become an idol mm-hmm. and yes. their worship had become sort of cultic activity and not, it was not a means to an end of communing with God anymore. It was the end in of itself. And I think for a lot of us, we are all similarly guilty of that charge. And so to be able to say, yeah, you can't come and worship in the same way, but you can still worship. Um, it's okay. You can sit in my lap as long as you don't talk. Um, so that's good. And so anyway, I, I yeah, I think that's a really, a, a really just good and astonishing thing to sit with. And also to recognize that if, you know, if there's a great reawakening, a great transformation this season, it's not up to us to do it. It's up to us to be aware of what God is doing and naming what God is doing and participating in what God is doing. But, you know, this isn't our time to um, create something, um, but to be used by God. And so, yeah. So those, I think both of our astonishments were more things we've been thinking about, which maybe. Well, I'm I'm also thinking about Uh, some things, but let me, um, let me just add, uh, something before we move to um, what we're thinking about. I had a conversation with a pastor uh, here in Charlotte. Uh, for those who are listening to us for the first time or don't know our location, we're in Charlotte area. And well, both of us have churches in Charlotte and, um, you know, the home of Elevation. And what I'm, what I'm about to say is absolutely zero shade toward Elevation. But I was having a conversation with a pastor uh, in Charlotte earlier this week, and he is a part-time pastor at a church with this tiny, tiny, I mean, it's a really small building. 
And I think the worship space, I, I think it might seat 90 people comfortably. And I said to him, I said, do you realize that you're, and it's, it's, a, it's a fairly new building, I mean, probably built about 15 years ago. I said, do you realize that your space is probably the perfect size for some gatherings, uh, many gatherings that are going to take place post-coronavirus? I just think the, the intimacy of your setting, I think there's going to be, at least my gut says, there's going to be some move toward smaller, more intimate, more of a kind of more family, less corporate, um, less lost in the crowd, more cheers, everybody knows my name, um, congregations, but I could be completely wrong about that. And that may be more wishful thinking than anything. Well, I think the danger, I mean, I think, you know, I'm sure you've seen there's there's been a lot of stuff floating around on social media about like the church isn't closed, the church is deployed and that I mean, this idea that church is not a thing that we do once a week. Worship is not even a thing that we do once a week. I mean, Absolutely. worship is the, the thread in our lives all the time. And I, I I'm. In fact, what I'm thinking about and can say later is sort of houses an opportunity for recovering and growing in home worship. But um, I think that there's a danger in large and there's a danger in small and, and, and it's kind of the same danger, which is to say, you know, who, we are a people with a particular identity who are living life in a certain way because of who we believe Jesus to be. And so, you know, a, a large body gathering is dangerous if what you're doing is basically showing up to be a consumer and a small church gathering is dangerous if basically what you're doing is showing up to be a click. And either can be, be you know, beautiful and powerful if the people who are showing up understand that they are um, you know, they are the ones being sent. Like they are the yeah. ones. They are the who ones are on mission. Empowered to be mm -hmm. correct. And so, you know, if it's if it's in a large space, but but whoever you wander in, when you wander into that space, there are people around you saying, you know, I I see you and I want to know you and I want to be a blessing to you and I either want to to learn and grow with you and be edified by you, or I want to, um, you know, see if there's a way that God might be calling me to disciple you, but either way that requires me being open to the interconnectedness of our life. Um, and I, you know, I served a church once, um, that they had one service a week and the service was full. I mean, full to the extent that there was no place to park in the parking lot. And so we um, wanted to start a second service and there was just so much. And it was interesting because the congregation really prided itself on being sort of a conservative um, evangelical, because that was their self-understanding of who they were. But when it came time to say like, okay, let's start a second service because because we're full. And if people want to come and meet the Lord here, they can't because there's literally no place for them to park their cars and come inside. And, and, and then, you know, the feedback, which is, I think is really typical was, well, why, why do we have to do this? We don't need a second service. We can all fit in here. We, you know, the second service isn't as, as good. It's dividing us up. We want everybody together. And you just think like, well, but that's, so whether it's a big space or a small space, if, if the whole point is everybody I care about, I already care about. I mean, that's just anti-gospel. And so I think, I hope that people come um, out of this season hungry to create community and to love one another well and share lives with one another in meaningful ways. But but it can't just be like, oh my gosh, I've missed my people. Let me come back and connect to my people. It's got to be, how do I continue to, to open the door to this place in ways that can even feel like a threat, but, but has to be done because we have to be people who want to invite others into this life that we have. And we have to be people who believe that whatever the Lord has done in me, 
God can do in others and, and abundantly so. And the stranger I don't know might be the person who holds the keys to my deliverance in areas of my life. And I, I just, I think, I, you know, a lot of North American Christians don't, don't understand that. Like spiritual pride is just so rampant in our, in our country mm. and individualism. And anyway, so I hope, I hope you're right. And I hope that when we return, we don't just return to cherish each other, but we return to say, how can we make a space for inviting others in? Yeah. I'm, I'm mindful so. that after the Israelites returned from Babylon, um, Ezra then gathers the people he's yeah. on the huge platform and he just reads the law to them. And so let's, it, as if to say, let's just get centered around what's most important, what's central to who we are as a people. And it's not simply being a people, but it's this God who's called us to be a people who sent us on mission. And so let's return to that. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting in this conversation, like, this next thing I'm going to say might be troubling some people. And if so, like, whatever, just ignore it. But I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me about the Ezra and Nehemiah cycles is that's when people really double down on like, oh, foreign wives, (laughs) you know, like, let's get rid of the Moabites. Let's get rid of the foreigners. Let's be a pure and holy community. So this doesn't happen to us again. And, you know, I think God's answer to that is Ruth, right? I mean, it's to say, actually, you know, the, the one who will become the grandmother to the greatest King Israel has ever had. I might know my, my timing's all messed up on that. Um, but, but I mean, the reality, yeah, well, that's God's answer. Um, chronology aside that, that a lot of times we say we've had a problem because outsiders are in when the reality is, you know, the key to the central covenant has always been Abram. I'm calling you, I'm claiming you, I'm renaming you here is what your community, here's the gift of the people I'm giving you, but why does the people exist ultimately so that all nations on earth will be blessed? You know, so this isn't just, I'm going to pick my favorites and set them up on a hill and they can be blessed and look down and laugh at everyone else. I mean, the reality is you're going to be a peculiar people. You're going to live in this exceptional way, not so that you can think that you're better than others or so that you can, you know, hoard a limited supply of blessings, but so that you might be the catalyst through which the entire world is redeemed and reclaimed. And so, yeah, I just hope that when we return, we don't return with a like, hey, you know, God saved us. And so who cares about anybody else? But to say, no, we have been called in a particular way. And um, yeah, yeah so. this crisis presents- Sorry, I, church. I talked over you. No, 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 you're, you're fine. The, the crisis presents us both with great opportunity and great danger. And part of the danger, and I think you're right to point out, is that when this crisis is over, uh, we will rush to get back what we had. Um, and, and just re- mm-hmm. as if nothing happened, as if we didn't go through anything, let's just, let's just put back in place everything we were doing before and not shift, not change, not do anything to... Um, discern what the spirit is telling us well and just we like to scapegoat then we can see that right now happening on a national stage of people wanting to just blame and um cause suffering to asian americans and asian people but i also think you know when we come back together as a community we just you know we'll be feeling i mean i think that we we'll really have to resist the lie of scarcity and blame within our spiritual communities and really um, remember that, you know, what saves us is not in short supply. And even if some of our communities, um, even if some of our communities die, even if there are ways that we are scattered um, among, you know, that's not, that's not necessarily judgment or punishment. And that's certainly not, a sign that God won't use us and um, do good for us. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just think right now we really have to trust God, which is something everybody likes to talk about until you get into a situation where it's not like an option, it's the option. And when it's no longer theory, it's just not so cute. So, right, right, right. So, yeah. 
That's good. Well, I am thinking about home worship a lot, and I, mm. I don't know that I have so much to say about it, but I just, um, next week, we are going to do our Holy Week services. Um, we're still going to live stream them on Facebook, but everybody's going to be in their homes. And I feel like this is just a really beautiful um, opportunity to create um, a new normal for people in our communities that, um, and I wrote a blog post about this, that like worship coming together and worshiping together on the Lord's day is great and wonderful and will always be a hugely important part of us. Mm. Um, but it was never meant to be that would be the only time in the week that we would worship. And I feel like there are people, there, there are parts of the body of Christ that have really, they get individual worship. Like I have my worship time alone. I have my quiet time alone, but we were meant to have corporate worship in our families, whatever that family configuration looks like, whether it's, you know, um, Ward and June and the Beaver <laughs> or, um, that's the leave it to Beaver illusion <laughs> for anyone who is not old. Um, <laughs> but whether that looks like, I mean, I think sometimes people are like, Oh, if you have kids at home, you do worship, but no, 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 you do worship in your home period. Like that's just part of our, our, our spiritual treasure and of our legacy. And because that's not familiar for so many of us, we think it's not for us or we think it's too late to start. Or we think like, not like, gifted don't enough. Don't know enough. So I can't, it won't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just what, whatever excuse I think the enemy of our souls give us, but the reality is God is always calling us into new things and new things are never comfortable because they're new. <laughs> um, and so to be able to say, hey, no choice, but on Monday, Thursday to do our meals around our individual tables and to have this linking through technology is great. No choice, but on Good Friday, we're going to worship together, but separately in our homes. And then to just begin to say, what are some other really, it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be some some super elaborate ritual, but to bring worship into our homes and just um, uh, allow God to sanctify, to bless us um, in in that way. So um, that's one of I think the potential gifts of this strange and hard season is for us. And so I'm just trying to think, okay, how. How can we do that? And how can we do it in a way um, that is, you know, suits everybody and not just, not just families with older people in them or families with kids? Like, how, how can we do that? God's people worship. And the worship we do together in our sanctuaries really matters. But um, I think the worship that we do in our homes is is even more powerful and even more catalytic and edifying. So yeah. that's one thing. And, and formative. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if we're trying to pass something on, like if we're trying to pass something on to whoever in our families, um, then it needs to be what we do when we don't have to, and when no one's watching and when, you know, we won't, we won't get, um, you know, like when I mean I just think a lot about Jesus talking about like oh the Pharisees love to play pray out in the marketplace with big words when everyone's watching and so that's it that's you know they got what they did it for but when we worship in our homes in ways that no one's ever going to see and no one's ever going to know except for God then that really restores worship to its um true one of its real true purposes and so yeah I just feel like we're all, we're all disrupted. Everything's not normal. So it's a really good time to begin something um, without shame. So yeah, that's, that's good. So that here's was, what I'm thinking about. These days. Follow through. <laughs> um, you know, the question comes up, you know, when I do Bible study online with uh, folks and our congregation and um when i just talk to people and when i tune into one of the things this season has given me the opportunity to do is to tune into uh christian television and holy cow um 
Christian. Yeah, well, <laughs> Christian is a great noun, not so great an adjective in my book. An but adjective, anyway. yeah. Um, but uh, there, there are more networks than I thought. And so during the day, I just, I watched different programming. And so on those networks, talking to people and just when the room is quiet and my own soul is meditating, one of the things that I'm hearing, questions that I'm hearing is, well, what is God doing in this crisis? It, more like, why, why are we in this? So I've been thinking about why, and I have three broad categories. I think all, all are biblical, but I'm leaning toward the last. So the first why is, and what I'm hearing quite a bit on television and in, uh, you know, off the internet and other uh, media is it's, it's judgment. It's just God's judgment. God's angry with either society or church, and this is a huge timeout. Um, is there biblical logic for that? Sure. I'm, I'm not drawing that conclusion. The second why uh, that I'm hearing, and uh, this was where I went at first, is that you know we simply live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, you get sickness and disease. And because of the advent of modern medicine, we've just kind of forgotten that pandemics and plagues, these things take place. And for much of his, human history, this is not out of the ordinary, right? So this is just part of living in, the, in a fallen world, just like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes. The third why, and it's it's kind of where I'm 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 landing. It's not kind of. It is where I'm landing, um, at least for now. Um, it's it's Acts chapter eight keeps coming to mind, and in Acts chapter eight, uh, the, the 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 Christians are centrally located in Jerusalem, and they're meeting together in homes. They're meeting in temple courts, and everything is going fine. It's going swimmingly, right? And suddenly, um, because of the ministry of the church, this, this persecution breaks out against yeah. the church. The church isn't being punished. Mm -hmm. God isn't angry with the church. But it is a painful disruption in the life of the church of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. It is so painful. I think the book of Acts says that it causes all the believers, except for the apostles, to scatter. Everyone leaves except mm -hmm. for the apostles, and they go to, uh, well, uh, Antioch becomes this wonderful multi-ethnic, mm -hmm. multicultural hub, um, and uh, the text says, and the gospel continued to spread. So Grim. I'm wondering if this yeah. is that kind of thing, that God isn't angry, this is not punishment, and, and there, there's, there's a mystery there. Uh, we 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 can't really pierce through the, the cloud of why, but what is happening is that this is causing the church to spread and like in the or or to scatter and like in the in the uh, book of Acts, the church came out on the other on on the other side of that persecution, stronger, more dedicated to the mission, uh, ears wide open to what the Spirit was saying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, greater yep, depth yep. of power, and so I'm wondering if that is what we're in. Well, I, I'm embracing that. This is painful, but yeah, this is this is um, the thing we're going through is not good, but God is going to work powerfully in His people. Um, through it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where you and I. I mean, because we have different. I, I mean, I don't think opposing, but sort of different understandings of different theologies of the cross in general, like you, you're more of a classic substitutionary atonement person than, than I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, but ultimately I am just, I, I think it's okay to ask why. I mean, people ask why I, I think in ways it's deeply faithful to ask why, because behind that 
question is a belief that to say, okay, God, I, I believe, uh, I, I believe in you. I believe that you are good. I believe that you are all powerful. And so then the reality I'm experiencing doesn't, it doesn't conform to those beliefs. And so I ask why, and, and that's faithful, right? Because, you know, back in the days, um, and, you know, when people were worshiping Zeus or Hera or, or um, Asherah or whoever, they, they didn't ask why when something terrible happened, they were just like, yeah, that's who God is, right? Like God is, you know, that the Romans and the Greeks believed, um, you know, to the extent that, that the myths are not metaphors, but to the extent that people really believed, I mean, they just believed that the gods were kind of assholes, right? They were jealous and they were spiteful and they were, you know, running around assaulting, sexually assaulting women. I mean, that's just, those were the gods they worshiped. They were not good. Um, they were powerful, but they were not good. And, not and good. so when we ask why underneath that question is our bedrock foundational belief that God is good. And so it's a faithful question. Um, and it, and it, I think it pleases God when we ask, um, I also think that, you know, one thing that the book of Job, which like not a fan, like deeply disturbs me, it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. It's not edifying. But I mean, one thing that that shows us is that like, why is both a good question and a not good question? Because the reality is there's just a limit to how much we can comprehend. And the danger when we ask why is that so often we come up with this really simple, ugly answer. Um, that, you know, that gets rid of the discomfort of not knowing. Uh, and so the reality is, you know, I would love to dismiss out of hand the idea that God is um, bringing judgment. I, I take the Bible seriously, though, so I can't say that there's nothing in Scripture that would lead me um, to, I mean, that's not a ridiculous thing for people to wonder or to speculate about. Um, like you, I don't, I don't think that this can be something that we um, look at the suffering and go, well, God caused this. Mm, I mean, the reality is, I, I think two things. One is, um, if we lived the way that so many of us who proclaim to be people of faith, if, if we actually lived out the values of our faith, we wouldn't be suffering as much as we are suffering right now because we would be a place where we took care of one another and when we're the weak and the vulnerable um were you know had access to health care and access to uh, just care in general and and a pandemic like this wouldn't have had the opportunity to spread so much and if we were the people who we said we were we would understand that you know the earth is the lord's and that you know we think we're so far apart but we're really not and we would have understood long ago that that what happened in China matters to us, not just because, you know, who cares about those people over there, but because it's one world, one earth, and those people over there are our neighbors. And so we would have, you know, we just would have been prepared more and, and, and amassed more of our resources in, um, you know, things to care for people who are ill than say, you know, 99,000 plastic Mickey Mouse purses that we produce every day, right? I mean, like, I just think part of what we see why this is so powerful is because these are our values. We care about things and not people. And we don't think long-term about the repercussions of things. We do what seems good in our eyes and our gods or our stomachs. And the prophets have been telling us that for generations. And the other thing that I think about that question, why, when people answer it, is it just to me betrays what I would sometimes label just the enlightenment fallacy. Mm. Like there are so many, I think, Western people who believe that, you know, not that they're necessarily scientists, but they believe that the scientific industrial enlightenment revolution happened. And so, you know, back then, things were primitive and bad. And now things have been getting better and better and better and better. And so when we read about a pandemic in the early 1900s, we think like, oh, well, that could never happen to us now because we're better and life is better and life will always be getting better and better. And so we study history and we think like, mm, that's bad, sucks for them, but those things could never happen to us because we believe that, human history is moving 
you know, on the graph, like to the right and up all the time. And so when something happens that shows us that we're not as, you know, sophisticated and protected and life is not necessarily going to get better and better, we, we A, are just genuinely surprised. And I just think there's this hubris in Western civilization that is really this moment is laying bare because had we been more aware of ironically the science i mean it's not like scientists haven't been saying for decades how vulnerable we are to a pandemic like this we've just been ignoring it other than to make movies to entertain ourselves we've just been sort of saying like well that could never happen here because america right i mean or and that's what i think just that pride and it's an ungodly pride is really revealed in this. And I don't think that that's, I mean, you, you can say, okay, God is punishing us for that pride. Or you could say, God has been telling us all along, these values and these priorities are not good. <laughs> like yeah. Not because I'm testing you or trapping you or saying, don't do the things that give you pleasure. Because I'm telling you, this way of life gives some people pleasure in the short term, but ultimately brings destruction on God's beloved people. And I just don't think that we believe when God says, here's a good way to live. We think, I I think a lot of Christians just think like, oh, that was a test for those people back back then, but we're saved by grace. And that means we can just do whatever we want and God doesn't care Mm. or, you know, it won't hurt us. And and that's just not true. So I, I think it's always made me super frustrated when people talk as though, America is this city on a hill and God will never let anything bad happen to us. Like, I don't know what, I mean, it seems to me that you are not reading the gospel. Like you are hearing sound bites from Mm. someone else's story with an agenda that I don't think is very much like Jesus's. And the idea that, you know, God's people have suffered tremendously for millennia and the idea that we think that could never happen to us i just think portrays this great i mean not only does it make us just arrogant jerks but it makes us seem like the theology implicit in that belief is that somehow god loves us more than all those other people back then and that's an ugly god and i don't believe that that's who god is at all so god's people you know i think that god wept over you know the trail of tears and the massacre of Native Americans. And I think that God wept over the great injustice and humanity and slaughter and torture of enslaved Africans in this country. And I think God wept over the um, anti-Christ crusades where people of the Muslim faith were slaughtered ironically, in the name of Jesus, like the the presence of great suffering never signals the absence of God. And I don't think that we understand that very well in America because we get formed more by the American myth than by the gospel. I mean, and that's, you know, Jesus saying when when the word comes into the temple that some people had died. Do you, but you know, the story that I'm talking about when people die, I think in a collapse, while they're worshiping and Jesus says, do you think this happened because they sinned more than everyone else? No, that's not, suffering is not evidence of God's absence or God's hatred. That's, and obviously Christians should know that because at the center of our faith is God's own beloved son in whom God is well-pleased, suffering unjustly unto death we should know that the presence of suffering doesn't signal the absence of God. And so I just, I'm okay with people asking why. I'm just not okay with all the shitty answers that people yeah, well, and pin on I God. Think, I think you're right. Suffering isn't about the absence of God, but uh, suffering does point to something. And so you're right. It is good and faithful and biblical to ask, well, why this suffering? Because if I'm in exile in Babylon because um, I rejected the law of Moses, then then the proper response is, oh, I need to come back to the law of Moses. I want to embrace the law of Moses, right? Yes. So 
I do think it is, it's helpful to begin to ask why, because uh, part of what drives that, I do think some, there, there are idolatrous reasons to ask why, but health, a healthy reason to ask why is because you're trying to formulate some response to the suffering, some faithful response to the yeah. suffering. Yeah. If I'm suffering. Yeah, because I mean, when I think about, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if I'm suffering through no fault of my own, but I'm still suffering and I'm trusting God, then uh, I just think there's there's a call there. There's a, well, and even if, even if it is my fault, there's a call there. God is calling us to something in the midst of this suffering. And I think there is, and I think so. there's a call to the church. And, and sometimes, right. And, and sometimes the church is suffering because the church has challenged the powers and principalities that are currently passing away, right? So when the early church was experiencing persecution, that was because they were directly confronting the death-dealing lies of the Roman Empire, right? They were saying, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is. They were saying that the myth of redemptive violence was a lie, that you can't make peace through the sword. They were directly challenging but it the power wasn't, of Rome, and that caused it, suffering. But it wasn't Rome persecuting the church. It was the religious leaders. And so they're... they're sure, and, and persecuting the... I mean, and they were directly confronting the hypocrisy of those who claimed to own... The revelations of God. Yes. I mean, but all I'm saying is there's sometimes we're suffering because we are so faithful to the revelation of Jesus or to the revelation of Torah that it puts us in opposition with the reigning powers and principalities. And sometimes we are suffering because we have just conformed so well to the reigning powers and principalities of darkness that we are like being devoured by the idols we've been worshiping. Because I think, like when I think about the exile for the people of Israel, I mean, I think the classic understanding is like, okay, they were hateful. And so God sent the Babylonians in to destroy them because God was fed up and ran out of patience. I mean, okay. But another way to look at that is, look, the legacy of Israel, the destiny of Israel was to be that shining light to be a different kind of nation that would be a blessing to all nations. And when Israel, and I mean, and we all do this, so I'm not signaling out at all any ethnicity or any religion, but like when we conform to the prevailing ways of the culture, I mean, the reason God calls us out of those ways is because those ways bring death. And so the reality is, you know, when Israel decided to be a nation like all the other nations and enter into the empire building power building like a they they weren't living out their destiny and their destiny was to be the nation that would have ushered in a new way of living where nations lived in peace with their neighbors and instead you know that's not that's not how we live you know we didn't live out our we sold our birthright for a mess of pottage and so i just think there's a kind of suffering that we, I mean, whatever, God is with us in our suffering, whether we caused it or, but I mean, um, there's a kind of suffering that we seek out and embrace because we understand it as the cost of being light and being salt. And then there's a kind of suffering that we recognize, oh, I, I, I built up a world that's consuming me and I can't blame God for that because I was called to a different way of life. and so you know, God loves us when we're fools and loves us when we're sinners and, and even yet will help us to repent and walk by another way. But I mean, I don't think it's as simple as saying like, okay, God is like a toddler up in heaven and annoyed and knocking over the block tower as much as God is saying, return to me because I called you to another way of life because it is the only way to have life. And this other illusions are just, they're killing you. Mm. So anyway, Sorry for the the odyssey. 
Uh, no, it's good. Well, I think it's, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's good, proper and right. I think people are asking about that. I think people are wondering. And um, I think we have to wrestle with these issues because we have to think about what next, right? It goes back to my earlier question about, well, how is the society going to change? How is the church going to change? If we don't wrestle with the why of our suffering, I don't know if we will yeah. wrestle with why change because if okay if this is judgment then what is required is repentance what is required is turning if this is uh unearned suffering what is required is um, a, a more intense focus on the mission and maybe it's a combination of right. several things uh, in in terms of well personally I don't believe, I, I, I do not believe that we're suffering in this way because we've been so faithful, <laughs> like, let me just say. And I, I mean, I, when, when I first came to the church that I serve now, um, and I just, it was my first chance leading a church and I loved the people and people were really lovely to me. And it was this beautiful little community that was fast running out of resources. And I, um, and I just couldn't really figure out why. I mean, it's just very frustrated and I couldn't figure out why and what was wrong and why were we so small. And, um, but I do remember one day sort of having this really uncomfortable epiphany of like, oh gosh, the reason we're small isn't because our standards of righteousness are so high that no one can, you know, it's not like we're so much more faithful than everyone else that that's why, you know? And so I think, I don't know, this moment reminds me of that moment. Like I just think a lot of, to borrow a phrase, a lot of chickens are coming home to roost in terms of the ways that our larger culture, what our values are, that we value entertainment and then we value pleasure. And we think that might makes right. And we think that, um, you know, wealth, just the way the ways that are we assign value are really are really hurting us right now um and and i do think that you know the biology of this virus is much more destructive than it would have needed to be if we were a different kind of community with different kinds of national values and for a judeo christian nation you know that we want to say that means we want to force people to pray in public spaces, but it doesn't mean that we want to live out the values of God as proclaimed by Jesus and the prophets. And if, you know, anyway, so that is the beginning of what I think about that. I am, um, my people are getting restless. I don't know if yours are too. <laughs> I think we might have to well, really. Um, I, I hear, I hear my rapidly. six-year-old playing the ukulele down the hall. <laughs> I'm surprised you yeah, haven't heard him yet. Say, my, I have not heard him, but I'm, I'm hearing my people. And uh, anyway, yes. So what do you I guess quickly, what do you, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm preaching the triumphant entry in it's Jerusalem. Awesome. And I think, it's Palm Sunday, and um, I'm kind of, um, like I just sense there's a really good and a particularly powerful word for this season that it seems to me that the huge takeaway from Palm Sunday is things aren't what they seem, and what seems powerful and inevitable um, it isn't, and what seems weak and foolish and a waste of time isn't, and right now, I think that's a really life-giving word to people who feel like they are um, slowly being overwhelmed by an invisible and unstoppable threat. So um, I'm, I'm excited about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just create space to really think about um, that Holy Week. I mean, everything that it was visible about Holy Week has been stripped away. And that if we lean into that, that's kind of a gift because it's easy just to be satisfied with, you know, the pretty Easter dresses and the, you know, the lilies in the sanctuary. And those things aren't wrong, but they're not what we're celebrating. And so um, I, I, I'm excited for, for an opportunity to make really plain um, the goodness 
of Holy Week in a way that it must have always been, you know, for the very first disciples. They weren't gathering in beautiful spaces with trumpets and throngs of, you know, that's the power has never been in what it looks like, but in what it is. And so I'm I'm excited for that. So what about you? Well, um, for months I've and you know this already, I I've I've been so um inspired by the work of N.T. Wright and especially his focus on Mm -hmm. new creation. And so have said a lot of words, especially since last fall um, to our church family about uh, uh, the end in terms of new creation, that we are, the the point of Christianity is not for us to fly away to heaven and leave this old world as, you know, uh, some folks say, but the point is that heaven invades earth. And uh, just as, you know, we, we, we conceive of that wrong, we conceive of what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday wrong. And, and so did the, the first uh, uh, folks there um, in Jerusalem. And so again, I think this Palm Sunday, just pointing to, uh, the work of God in Jesus Christ to restore, renew, redeem creation, that the way it is now is not the way it will always be. And it's not because God's going to take us out of the world. It's because God in Christ is redeeming the world. And so th- this life, this world, the people around you, the institutions, this matters. And so we're, we're not just writing this off so that we can go to heaven, but we are cooperating with Christ by the power of the spirit in the, in the work of recreation and redemption. And um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm combating a kind of escapism um, that's, that's pretty prevalent in, in my circles in terms of the, the church uh, that I serve. I just was writing a lot of that down. So oh, okay. <laughs> I love it that it makes me, yeah, I do think what is happening in that moment is an invasion. And um, Jesus is revealing to us that something new begins. Um, we, we think that we need certain things in order to be part of something powerful and transformative and important. And Jesus is revealing to us that we do, but not the things we think we need. And that, we don't have to go up in a way in order to live real and beautiful, truth-filled lives. That there's just a beauty and a holiness and a power that is here, um, but hidden. And Jesus is, mm-hmm. you know, it's an apocalypse, really, what's happening. And it's a great revealing. And we have to be the people with eyes to see. And I've been thinking about that this all week that, like, I mean, to the extent that I grew up in the church, um, I never understood Palm Sunday. Like I always was just like, oh, it's kind of like a little mini Easter. Isn't that great? <laughs> like you got mini Easter and then big Easter and sort of it's this parade. And then you get older and you're like, this is the worst parade ever. Like what, you know, and I feel like we, we need people to understand Palm Sunday and why I, I mean, whatever to ignite a very fierce battle between a very small group of people, why we don't do skip to passion. Like if you just skip Palm Sunday and make it passion Sunday, you basically have said, Oh, there's nothing happening in this entry that is important for us to know or understand. And there is. And so anyway, yeah. and that's exciting here, but that might be my, when the people, when the people in Jerusalem cry, Hosanna, save us. It seems that they're thinking, if you're the Messiah, if you're the conquering king, save us from the Romans. And often in our day, well, in my own heart, I will cry, save me, rescue me from a particular thing. But, but <laughs> what I really need rescuing from is not the thing I can see and feel in the moment. It's something bigger. And I think that's happening um, on Palm Sunday. Jesus is rescuing, he's saving, but uh, uh, the people don't quite get it. Well, and Jesus isn't saving them from the Romans. I mean, 
or, or, you know, the, the, um, hypocritical nature of all religion, Jesus is saving in and through those things, in and through a direct confrontation with those powers and principalities and lies that reveals them to be empty and powerless and saves the people who are being, um, whatever, infected by them, right? So, um, yeah, they, people were saying, save us from the Romans, like zap them and make us powerful like they are. And Jesus is saying, you know, no, because it's the, the it's the whole game that the, the whole game, not that I watched Game of Thrones, but the whole Game of Thrones yeah. that you people have instructed, yeah. that's what I'm getting rid of. Well, and so. I am um, reminded of so much of what Paul says in Romans um, and in other places that if, if you have eyes to see that this mm-hmm. one who is riding on a donkey that this one who is hanging on a cross suffering is God's Messiah, is the way God is restoring, redeeming, conquering earth. If you have eyes to see this, that's that says nothing about you, <laughs> how smart you are, but that yeah. says something about yeah. the work of the Spirit. And Jesus says this a lot in the Gospel of John, like the, the, it is the Spirit that enables you to see this. And so when we engage Palm Sunday, if we are able to see in this event, <laughs> this man the riding on a donkey. And power. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this humility that is going to conquer yeah. the world, not with a sword, but through suffering. That revelation is... <laughs> is humbling and astonishing. It, it, it almost reminds me of, you know, when Peter makes his confession, you are the Christ and of the living God. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood didn't give you that, Peter. Yeah, blood didn't give you this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this week when I've been studying that text, I've been playing around with this idea. And I wonder what you think of this. I mean, unless you don't agree with it, in which case I don't want to know. But I was thinking like, good. I really think that what, you know, what we see is the um, royal, the holy humility of Jesus in that moment. I'm thinking that like the theological equation for that is, you know, love plus power equal humility in the kingdom of God. Love love. plus power equal humility in the kingdom of God. And in the world, you know, it's not right. Like in the world, self-love and power equal authority equal um violence equal maybe love and powerlessness equals fear or vulnerability or obsequious or whatever but in the kingdom of god love and power are expressed through humility and we are supposed to be living in that kingdom and so we ought to be our love for God and for one another and the power that we have as a gift from God for the sake of the kingdom, it ought to be expressed in humility. And if we are a community of people committed to living in humility, then that becomes a community of shalom, right? Of interdependence and mutual flourishing. Um, And that, you know, that's, that's the kingdom of heaven, right? And that's, but I, I think, yeah. I say yes to that. The but is, and for me, this is a a gospel but, (laughs) the but is even when you know that cognitively, you have no strength to enter into that kind of life. It takes a work. Without grace. Yes. So if you you take the, the, the grand biblical narrative, Right. So God creates this world. It is good and sets this man and this woman and gives them royal power, dominion. Right. And through their Mm -hmm. rebellion, they forfeit it to the evil one who becomes, as the Bible says, the prince of the air. And so Mm -hmm. there 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 needs to be someone to come that now enables these human beings 
who are held captive by an enemy, held captive by a different king. They need to be set free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Give their allegiance. And I but think I, that is what's happening, Palm Sunday and the cross. Well, yes. And I'm just saying, like, when I say love plus power is expressed in humility, I mean, I'm talking in that moment about Jesus, right? Like, Jesus yeah. is doing that. Like, are, is anyone else doing it at that point? No. Is anyone else ever doing it without grace? No, but I mean, I think that when I'm talking about, I need, I think we as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to understand Palm Sunday. And if we think it's like, I mean, again, like, and I say this all the time, like, I mean, for all that it is, the Bible is not that big of a book, right? It's not like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to like have familiarity with the whole library of texts. And you think about what it takes to become a, a pastor or a doctor or a teacher, like all the things you have to be familiar with. I mean, the reality is to, to say it's this one book that you need to know in order to have the fullness of the revelation of Jesus, exceptions apply, right? Obviously, but um it's not that big of a book. And so that we have this idea that somehow there's this scene that's repeated in all the gospels and yet it's just there for decoration and it doesn't really have any like deep edifying revelation for us. I mean, that's just a stupid thing to think. So then you have to ask, why is this so important? Like, why is it here? And what is it supposed to teach us? And if we've convinced ourselves somehow that it doesn't matter. We don't need to understand it. Then I just think we're, we're robbing ourselves of an important truth. And um, my friend has brought us a picture. That's very nice. Thank you for bringing me that picture. That's great. Um, this might be our closing credits. <laughs> that is a beautiful <laughs> a picture. Beautiful picture. Um, she's gone. So, <laughs> um, well, we are glad that you hopefully you are still listening to our um, Corona edition, um, edition number three in the Corona volume, in the Corona era. Um, I really miss being able to walk and run beforehand, but um, Dude, I'm we are still. I am. I've, <laughs> this has to be over pretty soon because I am gaining lots of weight. I am not working out yeah. and this is not good. So anyway, go ahead. This is gonna be bad because I'm running every day. So oh. I need you to get, I need you to get it together because oh. I can't. Like my anxiety is through the roof. I have to run every day. Okay. Well, I haven't run every day, but I've run a lot, oh. a lot more than I want to. Um, anyway, we would still um, have lots to share with folks if you're interested in our communities. Um, you can check out Derida. Presbyterian Church. If you Google Derida Presbyterian in Charlotte, and it will pop you over to Yolando's church's website. And if you want to know about more about the community that I serve, you can search, uh, or it's thegrovecharlotte.org. That's our website. And you can hear Yolando's messages, um, which are very much worth hearing if you go to the Podbean, Podbean website. Mm -hmm. um, and Podbean. Uh, my kids do a school website called Membeam, and that's why I get confused. But it's Podbean website and search for to write a church podcast, and you will get all of Yolanda's messages. And if you'd like to hear uh, sermons from the Grove, you can go to iTunes and search for the Grove Charlotte and get all of those. And we really love making this podcast, so um, we're really grateful that you all listen to it so that it's not a complete self-indulgent ego trip anyway thanks for listening and uh one way or another we will talk to you next week bye